Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Elmore. My guest today is Heather McGowan. Heather is a thought leader, author, and one of the leading voices on the fourth industrial revolution. Heather's groundbreaking approach to the future of work and learning has made employees more fulfilled and innovative, leaders more potent and empathetic, and businesses more effective at reaching their goals in a rapidly evolving market. Heather's at the forefront of challenging what it means to be a leader in the future of our work. She would say it's not about lifting up the best or the most dominant performers, but rather selecting the most collaborative, the most empathic, and the most fundamentally human among us to lead. Heather's academic work took place at Rhode Island School of Design and Jefferson University. Her corporate work spans product design, business strategy, and boutique investment banking. Heather has also helped to bring dozens of consumer products to market, such as sporting goods, medical items, and baby products. After decades of working on both the demand and the supply side of business, Heather now dedicates her time to speaking and writing about how businesses can change to build the future. Heather, we are so excited to have you join us for this really interesting topic. Thank you for taking the time to be here today. Thanks for so much for having me. I look forward to the discussion. Yeah. Well, I guess as we start, do you want to just give us a little bit of information about your academic background and how you began working with businesses? Sure. Uh, you can't connect the dots looking forwards. It only makes sense backwards. So <laughs> in that vein, I started out at Rhode Island School of Design where I did my undergrad in industrial design, which is essentially product design and design strategy, design thinking before those words were colloquial. I went into product design for about a decade. And then I started asking all these business questions. And so folks said, well, you can't ask those questions unless you have an MBA. You should go get an MBA. So I was like, already. I went and got an MBA, and then I pivoted into some boutique investment banking and financial services, extended my education that way. And then by chance, I had a conversation with someone who was reconceiving the Center for Design and Business at RISD, which led to about a decade in academia. I went from there to building a new college focused on innovation at what is now Jefferson University. It was previously Philadelphia University. And then all along the way, I kept seeing and hearing and sensing that we both weren't creating the workforce we needed from the future in my academic side. And then in the corporate work I was doing, we didn't have the people we needed even to execute today on the demands of the workforce. So I started explaining, like, this is how work is changing and we're not thinking about it correctly. This is how the impact of technology is coming in and how that's going to change us as humans and how we should rethink this. And that became its own thing. And about wrote an article in 2014 on LinkedIn called Jobs Are Over, The Future is Income Generation and how we should think about ourselves as individuals differently. And that went viral. And I started getting speaking requests from all over the world. And I hadn't even had that on my radar screen of what I was going to do with my life. Fast forward to today, that's all pretty much all I do is, is keynote speaking and writing books on the future of work, but it it organically grew out of experiences and, and seeing that nobody was really covering the space that I thought was really important for us to understand as humans. Wow. I love those stories where you, you wouldn't have predicted, you know, X number of years ago that this is what you would be doing, but this is what you do now. So it sounds like you have a very design creative aspect to the way you think about things. And you were able to apply that to the business space and then just notice this huge 
issue that we're having with where work is going. And it sounds like there's this huge gap between what people are expecting or trained and prepared for versus what is actually needed in the future. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, if you look at many universities today, if you're a student, you apply to that university often right into a major. Now you picked that major based upon what you were told you were good at in high school, which is a very thin slice of life. And then once you get into that major, you're encouraged to not take anything outside your major. So you graduate on time. And that major is a belly buster of content, half of which might be irrelevant by the time you graduate. You graduate, you've had no life experiences, you got a mortgage level debt, and you have your first day of work and you go, oh, this isn't what I wanted at all. But you've had Mm -hmm. no other experiences. So that seems absolutely absurd to me. And you're you're not learning propositional thinking. You're not learning design thinking. You're not learning behavioral things. You're not learning all the things that are going to come up. You have a very much will it be on the test mentality. And so from my experience in academia, I'm like, we got to blow this up entirely. And then on the corporate side, you know, you, you hire people into jobs. And that in and of itself sets an expectation. Like, this is my job box that I'm going to play in this box. And that box was defined by the last occupant. Full of skills and knowledge is likely irrelevant. So we're not preparing people for a world of uncertainty and change, which is just simply the reality. It was the reality long before the pandemic, but it became became even more so in the pandemic. And so now we need a workforce that's different. That was our book in 2020, The Adaptation Advantage, Let Go and Learn Fast to Thrive in the Future Work. That's think about yourself like a product in beta, put yourself in as many experiences as possible, pay attention to what gives you energy, because we essentially want to become as self-propelled. And then our most recent book, The Empathy Advantage, Leading the Empowered Workforce, is we've got to lead these folks differently. We've been through an existential crisis. We've got generational change in the workforce. We've got labor shortages that are going to continue unabated. We need a completely different leadership profile. So that's Mm -hmm. how it all kind of comes to this moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely want to spend a lot of time talking about how you see the future of work and what is needed. But before we get there, let's talk about the past a little bit. I'm just curious your thoughts on and your and your expertise really on why the school system and academia is set up the way it is now. Was it something that used to be effective and is no longer because our world has changed? Was it never effective? Like why is it this way and why is it no longer working? Well it certainly was was more effective when the change rate was slower, where you went into an, an occupation and likely stayed in that occupation or industry and sometimes even company your entire career. So it was most efficient to break knowledge down into codifiable and transferable chunks. And that's why we created departments and divisions in academia. But what the irony is, any content that's codifiable and transferable, most of that's automatable as well. You know, it's something you can automate. So we're using the very same system to codify and transfer skills into humans that we do to feed information into process AI or generative AI that, you know, we're starting to really see today. So right. it's that it big fear everyone's been saying AI is going to come for our jobs and it has. <laughs> yeah. If it, but I always remind folks, you know, we thought that 50 years ago when the ATM came out, we thought all bank, you know, tellers were going to go away and we increased the number of buying tellers since then. So yeah. Yeah. No, but that makes sense. And you're definitely more an expert on this, but what it's bringing up for me and correct me if I'm wrong is didn't our current school system, like elementary school and up come out of the industrial revolution era? Yeah. The first or second industrial revolution where 
what we did basically in those industrial revolutions, both in the first steam and, and then electrification, was we broke everything down into one specific part of the process that one person would own in often in conjunction with some type of mechanical machinery, whether it was steam or electrical power. So we took that same process and said, okay, we're going to do that with knowledge now, but we're not producing products in an assembly line. We're doing knowledge work, which is really messy. And even the, the way we've designed our offices are, you know, people in cubicles plugged into computers, just like they're doing some piecemeal work like they were on the production line. So it all needs to blow up. Yeah. So it sounds like you're calling for a complete deconstruction and rebuilding of the school system and academia, not even just I'm, I'm focusing on the school system at the moment, but I know it's broader than that, just how to train people for the future. And yep. am, am I hearing correctly through what you're saying that really what you're calling for is critical thinking skills, the ability to adapt to different environments, that type of thing? The ability to deal with uncertainty, the ability to yep. deal with the ambiguity, the ability to do propositional thinking, the ability to propose a solution, test it, iterate on it, and pay attention to whomever is using the solution. Mm -hmm. A lot of that kind of thinking is rooted in design thinking, which why that became sort of a big thing a decade or so ago, 15 years ago, because businesses were like, hey, wait, this could apply to business. And they started using it in business. And some folks have added it into education, but not to the degree in which we should be. We ask young children what they want to be when they grow up. We ask university students to pick their major. We ask each other what you do. Like it's a it's a singular and fixed thing. And it really, this is a big part of the Adaptation Advantage book. You know, we found it's really dangerous because people can't adapt to switching jobs. They can't recover as well as they should from the loss of a job. And the loss of a job can be more damaging than the loss of a primary relationship because it's the loss everything you've been telling yourself you are since you were a small child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that it's a huge crisis right now, like the student loan crisis and the fact that, it, you know, it used to be pretty true that if you get higher education, you get a higher paying job. And that's just usually not true, depending on the field, but usually sure. not true anymore. So there's a lot of parents of young kids and teenagers questioning. I hear all the time. I used to work with kids and I used to hear all the time, like, school is so pointless. Like, why do I have to learn this information and memorize it when in the future, I'm just going to Google it, or, you know, I don't have to use this in a job. And I think people really are starting to feel the tension of what is the point of this format? Maybe this format isn't quite serving us well for the environment that these kids are going to be navigating as adults. Yeah. Yeah. So what we've done is focused on sort of, you know, our brain works in two modes, exploration and exploitation. So if you think about us like, you know, simple animals will explore to find a source of food, like the berries in the bush over there are good, and we will exploit that sort of source of food until it's depleted. Well, our brain kind of works in the same way in terms of conserving energy. And what we've done with education is we focus so much on the exploitation side, like getting the right answer, completing a task to a benchmark level. All of those things are good. They're part of skilling and reskilling but they're just a single part of something bigger. I mean, you really need to get folks to work more in exploration mode. So tell me what's wrong with this scenario. What do you propose as a solution? What are the questions we should be asking them? There should be much more education around that exploring and propositional thinking and prototyping than there is on that, find that singular answer to a well-structured and known question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned a little bit of this already, but maybe we could talk about what has changed since essentially the industrial revolution to bring us to this point now where there's a disconnect. You mentioned the pandemic, 
you mentioned, I think the great resignation, you know, tell us a little bit more about how things have shifted politically, economically, just in general. All right. Yeah. I won't take on the entire ocean, but let me take on. (laughs) Sorry. That was such a broad question. (laughs) Let me take on a piece of it. Okay. So we'll, we'll start with the, the pandemic. So in the pandemic, concretely, we accelerated. So we went into the pandemic. We were surrounded by technology tools we could use. Like right now we are on Zoom. Everyone thought Zoom was a brand new tool in 2020. Well, Zoom came out in 2010. It was 10 years old, but people didn't start using it until it suddenly had a crisis and no alternatives. So it called this sudden behavior change, whether it be around how we learned, how we had meetings. Oh, and thank goodness, finally, we could go to a doctor and say, is this a rash on my elbow, a reason I need to come in the office? And that saves you. That five-minute Zoom call saved you, you know, an hour and a half of fighting traffic in the city, finding parking, getting up, showing your insurance card and sitting down for what is, you know, 30 seconds of somebody looking at it. So concretely, uh, McKinsey said we let forward five years in the first 60 days we went into lockdown. Accenture said we were migrating to the cloud at twice the speed suddenly. World Economic Forum was predicting we were handing things off to technology at almost twice the speed. So we adapted to the technology around us. So I always say digitization or digital transformation is really human transformation because it's just a behavior change. So that changed. We came out of it. We're in the endemic phase of it now. And now we're looking back on it. And a lot of people are rushing back to the way we used to do things. And I don't really understand why, because we learned so much during this period of time. We trusted our people. We gave them autonomy. They took agency. They performed. And it worked relatively well, given the pressure of the pandemic. Now, imagine what we could do in the absence of the pressure of the pandemic. I think we're struggling with this interstitial period we're in right now between pandemic and what comes after it. So the other thing that, that's happened, if I, if I take a longer view back, so the first and second industrial revolution, you learned a skill, you got a job, you worked primarily in the same industry. So the first industrial revolution is steam, second electrical, third was computerization. And this is kind of mentally where we're stuck. It was the idea like pick a good job, pick a good major, pick a good industry and ride the career ladder up. Well, the career ladder is gone for most of us. And now most people are going to have to traverse a multi-industry, multi-business model, multi-job function, web of some sort with disconnected experiences. And having to do that is we're in the fourth industrial revolution. It's not a great explanation for every change that's taking place. I mean, my friend Tom Friedman refers to us as a Promethean moment that's changing everything. And I agree with him. But when we talk about jobs and skills, the industrial revolution framework kind of works because it helps you think about, okay, single job, single industry, climbing a career ladder to, whoa, traversing a web of a lot of change. And the the fourth industrial revolution was really about the merging of cyber, physical, and biological systems, which we're just starting to see. So if you, you know, instead of having a colonoscopy swallow a pill that, you know, takes pictures of your insides, that's a merging of cyber, physical, and biological systems. We'll see more and more of that with things like Internet of Things as we get more into generative AI and we get more into pervasive computing. We'll see much more of that integration, but we're starting to see the beginning of it. And GPT, very popular right now. (laughs) Yeah, I want to take a note on that. I think everyone's gone a little crazy on that. And I do want to know your thoughts about this. Go ahead. (laughs) I think it's fascinating. I think it's really cool, but I love talking to the historians. They always help me out. So one, you look at things like ATM. The first time people saw an ATM, they'd be like, whoa, the banking industry is over. Nobody's ever going to work in the banking industry again. 
What it did was change what a bank teller does, shrunk the footprint of a bank. We made more banks. We hired more bank tellers. Is that going to be the case for every industry? No. In some cases, we reduced the number of jobs. We definitely changed the jobs. But there hasn't been, nor do I think there's going to be, any piece of technology that's going to wipe out human work. It's not. It's going to change human work. So if you look at things like, you know, you got a phone in your pocket on your desk in your purse, we don't remember phone numbers anymore. We often don't orient anymore. We've handed things off to technology and it's been okay. Now, the other thing I like to look at historians too is we tend to waste a billion hours before we save a billion hours or million hours. I can't remember which one. So if you look at when vacuum cleaners came out around the same time that TVs came out kind of as mass products. We bought TVs a whole lot faster than we bought vacuum cleaners. We tend to look at technologies that will waste time as parlor tricks, imagining what they're going to mean to the future before we embrace time-saving tools like, you know, Zoom was out for a decade before we had a mass adoption of it. Mm, so we Fun. we are enthralled by the creative, fantastical almost element before we adopt it as part of our normal routine and, and rely more on the functional aspects. Yeah. And that's well documented by Gardner's hype cycle. If you've ever seen it, it goes like, whoa, what's this going to mean? Whoa, this doesn't mean anything. Oh, wait, I found a place for this. So chat GPT right now is like, whoa, this is so cool. So interesting. Everyone wants to talk about it. And then you're saying eventually there'll be a lull and then maybe it will integrate as part of our life, but we're just not sure how yet. Yeah. And definitely there's something in there that's very useful and it will find multiple places, but I don't think it's going to widespread wipe out all human work. I just don't. Well, that's comforting to hear. That is comforting. <laughs> what would your answer be on the, you know, AI technology aspect? Because there is always that question of what if it develops quicker than we're anticipating, we get ahead of ourselves. And then, you know, do you see any tension or any pitfalls potentially with technology? I see ethical pitfalls all over the place. And, and uh -huh. technology is a certainly a place of my, I posted an article that I read the other day, I think it was in The Guardian, that it's something like the 30 under 30 we've promoted. This isn't technology based, it's more ethically based, but 30 under 30 people that, you know, we've recognized the top 30 people who are under 30 years old in technology or business, and they've raised something like $5.8 billion. Great. They've also been involved in like something like $16 billion worth of fraud. So there is a problem we're promoting winner at all costs. And when it comes to some of the technology tools, I don't think we've thought through some of the things like we've completely seen facial recognition software that won't recognize certain races because they were never part of the input that defined those facial recognition features. So we definitely have things to fix before we do widespread deployment or adoption of those things. So we talked about technology, COVID. Is there anything else you feel like is relevant in the history to bring us up to speed? So I track changes in technology. I track changes in business models. And one of the things I'm tracking that's that's running at a bit of faster clip that I think anything is societal and cultural changes. And we're seeing, you know, advancements and then retreat, advancements and retreat. And if you look at it, you know, something like I'm a member of the LGBTQ plus community. We got marriage equality, let's say Massachusetts, I think it was 2004. I think federally it was like 2012, something like that. And now we're seeing a, a backlash, at least in terms of the transgender community, drag queen story hours, that kind of thing. But what we're seeing is a really profound, if you look at it from a broader sense, a really profound and I think fundamental change that's global. So I use data on LGBTQ plus and including gender norms data in my talks. And we're seeing 
doubling every generation of individuals who identify as being in the LGBTQ plus community. And as a subset of that, and I think a more visible piece of that, those who identify as being transgender or non-gender binary, that's doubling every generation. And that's a really fast move for folks. And when you look at it from millennial and Gen Z, which are now the largest share of the workforce, they're demanding changes that seem very sudden for folks. You know, all gender bathrooms, non-gender, the exclusion of any binary gender terms in the workplace that might you know leave anybody out. And I talk about this with corporations all over the world. I'm like, I know this is probably very uncomfortable for many of you. This is finally comfortable for some people who've been struggling with it for a long time. But guess what? When the largest share of your workforce is now demanding it, and so is the market you're serving, you're going to have to make these changes. So we're seeing that from gender and sexuality. We're seeing that from racial diversity perspective in the U.S., 18 and under, there is no racial majority. The diverse workforce isn't coming. It's here. The market we're serving, particularly if you're global, it's no longer people of color. It's people of the global majority to get people used to that idea. And we're having emerging ideas under the umbrella of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, by the way, which should be in there, DEI and B, is that we should have inclusion for neurodiverse folks which can be a real superpower in an organization. And also uh, we're starting to finally talk about social mobility as part of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And if we close the disability gap in the United States, according to Accenture, it'd be $25 billion in GDP. So it's a real interesting and timely topic that isn't going away because diverse companies have outperformed the S&P 500 for 20 years. Diverse talent will not join organizations, at least at the executive level, if you're not committed to a measurable and actionable diversity, equity, inclusion strategy. So that's one big change that nobody can ignore anymore. The other, which I'm sure is the heart and soul of your work, is burnout and mental health. Those are Mm -hmm. issues that cannot be swept under the rug anymore, and they're absolute issues we need to discuss. They are issues, if you do not care about the people, which I hope you do, of performance, of company performance. We have a performance problem with our companies. Folks are disengaged. They're actively disengaged and they have lower levels of engagement. Two points down the last two years in a row, according to Gallup, rising levels of burnout, rising levels of mental illness. And it's now an integral part of how your company functions. I say to folks, do you think of your mental health benefits as something you give up for your employee, or do you think of them as performance Mm -hmm. drivers? Because the good mental health of your team is essential for the success of your team. You need to start thinking about that as a really a strategic business investment, not just something you give up as a benefit. Yeah, well said. I mean, as I'm sitting here reflecting on all of this, it sounds rather distressing and heavy that our world is so changing so rapidly, but also things have changed so much since the design that we have to prepare people for work you know, it's just not relevant as much anymore. So let's talk about some solutions mm-hmm. to lift up the spirits of this conversation. <laughs> what? Well, what then the I, let me, yeah, let me just jump in and say, I am a belligerent optimist. I really believe we are on the cusp of making really profound changes to work. They will unleash the potential of more of us create better value. I think it's now an economic argument that so the economy is on our side. When investors are demanding more diverse companies, talent is demanding more diverse companies, investors are now realizing that good mental health is profitable and avoiding burnout is good for business. 
we're going to start seeing some of these changes we've long needed in work. It's a humanization mm-hmm. of work. So while I just described the challenges, the challenges are tied to solutions that are business imperatives. So I think that we're going to see them happen. So let me give you a concrete example, and I love data. So in 1975, if you looked at the enterprise value of all the public companies on the S&P 500 and where that value came from, well, 83% of it came from tangible capital, so property, plant, equipment. And you know, 17% came from intangible capital, which was human activity and ideas. So we made stuff into other stuff, and humans mm-hmm. were a cost to contain in that. So Milton Friedman, who's an economist reader of Chicago, he wrote an article in the New York Times in 1975, and he said, the only social responsibility for a company is to return profits to shareholders, full stop. Hmm. The environment doesn't matter, communities don't matter, customers don't even matter, and employees certainly don't matter. Whatever you need to do to return profits to shareholders within the law. And that range that was called the shareholder value era, the Friedman shareholder value era, reigned for about 50 years. And then the Business Roundtable, which is a collection of the CEOs of America's largest companies, came together in 2019, just prior to the pandemic. And they said, you know what? This isn't working. We're not making better value. We're decimating the environment, destroying our communities. Our employees are increasingly disengaged. We've been tracking that for 20 years. And you know, we're just not making good value. So they proposed that like a stakeholder capital, which had sort of like, we're in it for everybody. I think that's hard. I think you need a focus. So I say that we're in the human value error because when they did that same calculation in 2020, 90% of the value created came from intangible capital. That's human activity. So humans are driving all the value in organizations. And that's what makes investors say, hey, wait a second. And the Security Exchange Commission, which is in charge of how you do your financial disclosures for public companies, said in 2020, they came out and said, we have to start inventorying the humans in the organization where we used to say, okay, this company has so much gold or so much, so many technology chips or so much real estate, you know, as they recorded their assets, we have to start figuring out how to account for humans. Now that's messy and it's not right yet. It's still on the cost side of the balance sheet. We need to say it on the investor side of the balance sheet. But the fact that we're having these conversations in the last couple of years says to me, we're swinging more towards being all on what I call team human. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Most of us spend more time at work than anywhere else doing anything else. So why not spend that time in a job you love? Introducing Triad's Jobs Marketplace, the only job site dedicated specifically to behavioral and mental health professionals. Featuring more than 1,000 open jobs from dozens of behavioral and mental health employers and searchable by location, professional field, employment type, specialization, and more. Jobs Marketplace helps you find your next career opportunity. Full-time, part-time, or gig-time, make the most of your time. To access Jobs Marketplace, register for your free professional account at hellotriad.com bht. That's hellotriad.com slash B-H-T, and then click to Jobs Marketplace. If you're already a member of the Triad community, visit app.hellotriad.com slash jobs. That's app.hellotriad.com slash jobs. Visit us today and take your next career step tomorrow. (laughs) 
It is fascinating. And you're right. I was getting a little bummed out with all the problems, but you're absolutely right that being aware of the problems is the first step to creating solutions and sort of gets the ball rolling and gets people thinking. So I can see why you're optimistic that things are changing and will change because people are already noticing these discrepancies. Especially when we're motivated to solve them because we have labor shortages. We're going to have labor shortages for the next 10 to 20 years. So the workforce is empowered. So you mentioned earlier the great resignation. I actually think that's one of five things. So the great resignation is people leaving the workforce to find another opportunity. They're not just quitting. They're quitting one opportunity and going to another opportunity. That's our quit rate or our churn rate. Well, it's been increasing since 2009. We kind of act like that's a new thing. And we've acted like it was a new thing in 2021, 2022. And then we sort of declared it over in favor of this economic recession, which hasn't yet quite hit us despite the layoffs. But turns out more people quit in 2022 than they did in 2021. And according to Bankrate's latest survey, more people are considering quitting in 2023. So people are still moving around in the market. And so we have to break that down. I think there are five greats. So the great resignation means talent is mobile. We have to get used to that. We have to plan for that. Don't put any project in one person's hands. Everything should be collaborative. So if somebody leaves, you've got business continuity. Everybody should be in charge of their succession plans and building a pipeline around them. Do what you can to keep people, but you might not be able to keep people. Talent is mobile. The next one is the great retirement. We've got 75 million baby boomers who are retiring between now and 2030. I don't understand why we are surprised by that. We knew how old our baby boomers were. We they might <laughs> retire. This was pretty easy to figure out. Some we like early. to think of them as stable and reliable. You know, there are boomers. Well, yes, some, you're of, right. <laughs> some, are, some of them were, were, were figuring out ways that not every job has to be a fixed bugs job box of 40 hours. We're yeah. thinking about ways of breaking up labor so we can keep our boomers engaged for longer because they've got an incredible amount of tacit knowledge. So that, and then, then we've got the great reshuffling of the great reskilling. That's people leaving one industry to go to another industry. And that's like 53% of people who quit between 2021 and 2022 reskilled to go into a new industry. That's people working to their potential. That's good news. Then there's the great refusal. And this is long overdue. And that's people saying, I'm not getting punched in the face for $7.50 an hour anymore. Um, when a lot of our frontline workers were under stress, whether it was mask, no mask, don't get close to me, I could get sick. And the very real threat of their physical health on top of the political politicization of the science around what we were going through, they pushed back. And that it was long overdue because if we had kept minimum wage on track with inflation, and that's pre-pandemic inflation, it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of $24, $25 an hour right now. We're fighting for 15. So that's long overdue. Mm -hmm. And then the last great is the great relocation. And I think that's just beginning. Upwork estimates about 19, 20 million people in the United States who are looking to change location because they're saying to themselves, you know, and I've been through the existential crisis of the pandemic. I don't want to live in Manhattan anymore, or I don't want to live in the Colorado Rockies anymore, or I don't want to live in the Panhandle of Florida anymore. Instead of work-life balance, they're having life-work integration. So they're putting where and how they want to live, and then they're figuring out how their job fits into that. So collectively, that gives you the great reset. This is a change in the workforce. The workforce is empowered, and you have to meet them differently. I was just thinking of the great reset because you had me on this great track and I'm wondering, yeah, yeah I was going to ask if you think this, I mean, assume this is a huge part of what we hear of when we hear about the great reset, although I'm sure it could mean other things as well. Do you, do you have any thoughts about that in a summary? Yeah, that, that, that is, I just summarized what I think is the, it, great, reset. the great reset. So it's a yeah. reset of expectations. So the book Chris Shipley and I wrote that just came out last month 
the empathy advantage leading the empowered workforce is really about how do you wrap your head around that? You left the workforce in 2019. You went through the pandemic. You think you're going to pick up with the workforce you had in 2019. You're not. You know, we're losing boomers who had one experience and we're onboarding Gen Z who had a different experience. So Gen Z is often complained about. But if you look at Gen Z, they've had trauma at every life stage. They were born into 9-11. They don't know a time before terrorism. They entered grade school during the global financial crisis, so they started to feel economic fragility at a young age. The UN climate report came out, said we had 12 years to save the planet. Many of them say they're not going to have children because the, the planet's not going to be there. They've never known a time without war. They started having mass school shootings when they were in grade school. The Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement hit when they were in junior high, high school, beginning of their, their professional lives. And then they enter the workforce in a global pandemic. So they have had trauma after trauma after trauma. And on the one side, that makes you understand why they have higher rates of anxiety and depression. On the other side, they are the most diverse, well-educated workforce we've ever had. And they are insistent on working to make a difference. They're not going to check their values at the door. They want to work with a sense of purpose or not at all. They might be a little slow to adulting, but I think they're going to be glacial. They're going to cut a wide path when they move and really change work in a very interesting way. That's fascinating. Definitely. Yeah. It sounds like we just need a massive overhaul, hence mm-hmm. the great reset. Yeah. The great reset. <laughs> and I'm curious how you feel leadership might be adjusting during sure. the shift in, you know, in work, what would a good leader look like now? It seems like you were talking about collaboration more so than one person being responsible for a wide range of tasks or projects. Yeah. So I say that two transfer, this is the heart and soul of our book, The Empathy Advantage, that two transformations have taken place. One is a change relationship between individuals and organizations. The workforce is now empowered. So you have to meet them differently. The second is after 15 years of digital disruption and being in the fourth industrial revolution for six, seven years now, we need to operate differently. We can't use the mental models and maps of the past to predict and plan work. And so the simplest way to explain it to folks to make it tangible is I ask when I'm speaking to folks who manage people, how many of you manage people who have skills and knowledge you don't have? And it used to be the CEO always did and the executive leadership always did. But at the middle management to the front line, usually those people were unquestioned subject matter experts. That's not the case anymore. On almost every team, there is cybersecurity expert, data analyst, you know, machine learning expert, what have you is becoming increasingly common. So now you're suddenly managing people who know things you don't. And so you can't manage as that unquestioned expert making decisions and certainty. You're a humble, curious learner. So I say that we need to go through four shifts. The first shift is one in mindset from managing people to enabling success. Used to be you were the boss, you managed people, you fed out carrots and you, you know, you used the stick when you needed to. And that's kind of how things work. They worked for you. Now you work for them because their success is your success. Your success is entirely independent upon their success. The second is a change in culture. When everybody had the same, basically, skills and knowledge on a team at the middle and front line, you know, you could be that sort of unquestioned expert who would pit people against each other in forced rankings and that sort of thing. You would, you know, dole out the praise and rewards. Well, now, not only do they know things you don't know, they often know things that's unique to each one of them. So you have unique pieces of knowledge across your organization that need to collaborate. So you got to move from peers as competitors to peers as collaborators. Then the third is a shift in approach. 
we're never going to get people to learn and adapt at the speed, scale, and scope we need through punishments, threats, and rewards. It simply won't work. So we need to help folks get in touch with their intrinsic motivation. So it's from extrinsic pressure to intrinsic motivation. Like, what are you interested in? How do you want to define your job? Let's help you chart your career pathway. Even if it means leaving here for a while, maybe if it leads moving to another division, whatever it may be, the mentor is helping the boss is a mentor and coach helping the individual become empowered and self-propelled. And then the finally is a behavior change. So the middle management to the front line in particular used to be an unquestioned expert who can make decisions in certainty and drive productivity pretty much myopically and get graded on the performance they drove today. And then in reality, we need folks who can be create effectiveness through inspiration. It can create high-performing teams without burnout and can have one eye on, on the performance of today and another eye on the succession and pipeline of talent they're developing for tomorrow. So that's mm-hmm. the major leadership shifts. Yeah, well said. Well, I definitely understand what you're saying, and I kind of want to play devil's advocate for a minute. So what's coming to mind for me is, I think it was either a TikTok or an Instagram video, but went viral recently of, I think it was a Starbucks employee crying in the bathroom because they felt overworked. And I understand what had happened was they were short a couple staff that day. And so this person was just having a meltdown in the bathroom and saying they didn't feel supported and their environment was working them too difficult. And I guess I just would be curious of your answer of people who are afraid that the workforce you're describing is going to create that type of environment where, where there's not enough grit in their workers or there's not enough work ethic being fostered in their workers. So how would you address that or maybe, you know, speak to the balance between those two things? Yeah. So you got to kind of take it in a broader context. So um, 2019, 2018, 2017, we had this hustle always on culture where we would just grind you into dust, throw you out, get a new fresh body in there to do that all over again. And we don't have enough people to take that attitude anymore. And that was never a great idea. So we go through the pandemic and the pendulum swim from the employer all the way over to the employee. And now I think it's swung back in the middle a little bit. And what that really means is you've got to meet your employees with agreements. There has to be expectations of performance, but not an expectation of a hustle always on, always working culture. Because... That's not fundamentally good for us. We don't create good value when we're burnt out. We don't create good value when we're overworked. We don't create good value when we have hostile workaholic cultures. So we need to find a new balance. Yes, people need to be reportable. And that person who is crying in the bathroom is probably akin to some experience we all had when we were younger that we're adapting to new expectations. And that's just a reality. And I think we didn't have TikTok so that everybody in the world could watch our I'm worst moment. I'm so glad that there was <laughs> yes. no TikTok or anything like that when I was growing yes. up. Yes. I'm yes. glad that a lot of my worst moments were not captured. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, okay. I'm very fortunate for that. But I think we also, it's, it's like chat GDP where everybody is so excited, think it's going to wipe out everything. And then somebody watches one TikTok video of one person crying in the bathroom and he's decided that's all of Gen Z and they don't want to work. And what are we going to do? And, it's a real overgeneralization because that one video can get millions of hits when that really is one person. So we Thank have you. to put, yeah, we have to put that, we have to put that in context. But I also think that, you know, that we have had this always on culture. And in when I speak to you know leaders in organizations, I say, I know 
that the way you were trained in the early part of your career, frankly, sucked. You know, you gave up your Saturdays, you know, you started to have children and you missed your kids' soccer game and you missed your daughter's play and all that stuff. And now this generation is saying, I'm not doing that. And I know that that's frustrating and that's hard and I have to have empathy for you, but you got to motivate them differently than the way in which you were motivated. You were motivated with a lot of extrinsic pressure. You got to motivate these folks with a lot of intrinsic pressure and intrinsic motivation. You've got to help them become self-propelled. They're not going to respond to what you responded to. So that's a challenge we have right now is that our leadership right now was brought up in a completely different environment that is not going to work with this workforce. Yeah. I was just kind of wondering if you're experiencing pushback from higher ups and companies as you're bringing this message. I wonder if there's some inherent, almost like good old boys club attitude where it's like, well, we did all of this, so they should too. Are you running into that? Yes. In certain environments, I certainly am. And I have asked them to just experiment. Yeah. One week, one meeting, go in there and try to approach them like they're your children. We tend to lead people all the same way. When we raise children, we treat them all differently to intrinsically motivate them, but we don't do that in the workforce. Take the approach you would have with your children. How would you motivate them to get the best performance out of them? How would you Mm. shift your mindset say, how can I help this person be successful? And I've heard from many of them that they did it and they were surprised how well it worked. The other thing I want to say is there's this sort of general mindset. I mean, the, the, the title of our book is called The Empathy Advantage. There is this this feeling, okay, and somebody asked me, and I think this is exactly how they asked the question recently in one of my interviews. Okay, so I get it. I need to be empathetic. That means I have to listen to somebody's problems, make concessions, and expect less of them. And I said, well, sure, if their mom or dad just died or they put their dog to sleep, everyone's got a day where you have to do that. Not every day, but yeah. But what I'm really talking about with empathy is understanding how to motivate them to increase their performance, not decrease your expectations. So it's empathy drives performance. It's not empathy lowers expectations. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very common misconception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. When you said the initial, you know, reply that person had, I kind of peeked my head at lower the expectation because I don't think that's the point. Like you just explained, right? Maybe, maybe in the short term, but not in the long term. Right. Mm-hmm. Or specific um, moments, you know, we all have terrible, terrible days in our lives, and just like that poor TikToker, not not yes. the best moment, yeah, <laughs> not the best moment. We need to have yeah. compassion and lower expectations if you're crying in the bathroom. In that you moment. shouldn't be crying in the bathroom every day. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm glad you spoke to that though, because I just wanted to articulate or ha- have you clarify that you know you're not creating that type of work environment or advocating for that. No. It's really something different. Yeah. Well, to bring it down to earth just a little bit. Sometimes I think examples are really helpful. Can you think of a practical example of maybe an organization or even just a single person who made this transition and applied these new strategies to create a different workforce? Yeah, I have a a fellow speaker that I shared the stage with in in January, and he told me how he he works darts every meeting with one of four questions. And I just thought it was brilliant. I said, his name is Rashad Tabakawala. Can I borrow that and use that as an example? Because you just said it so much better than I ever could. And he said, sure. So you can start any meeting with any generation, whether it's a person crying in the bathroom or the the boomer who's been there for you know 18 hours and they don't want to go home. Start by saying, what's on your mind? It's an open-ended question. People can tell you what they're thinking about, what's top of mind, what be, be, be getting in the way of their performance or something where they're focused on the wrong point in their performance. The second thing you can ask them is, 
Can you help me? I'm working on something over here. I know you have more expertise than I do. Can you help me think about this? What those two things do together is they show vulnerability, they show empathy, and they show caring. The third thing you can do is say, can I help you? Is there something I can do to help you? Can I remove some obstacles? If I have resources, can I put them towards your project? Can I help you focus? How can I help you be more successful? And then the last question, often towards the end of a meeting with some frequency, let's give each other some feedback. Let's make it safe for you to tell me how I'm doing as your manager and your leader, you to tell me to tell you how you're doing on projects as I see you progress in your career. Now that sets up a coaching and mentoring relationship that establishes psychological safety and trust. It focuses on performance, but it has shared moments of vulnerability and caring. I really like that because from the psychology perspective, you can't be creative if you don't feel safe, right? Right. The part of your brain that is needed to be online to access creativity and design and different ways of thinking shuts down when you feel threatened or in danger. So that makes a lot of sense that that if we're asking people to do this higher level of thinking and get creative, we need to make sure they are feeling supported to a certain degree. Yep. And then an example of a company that's doing it, I just uh, spoke in New York in, I don't know if it was February or March, for a company that makes Mika hair care products or mm, yeah. uh, even, even New York, if you know them as well, same company. They are a venture-backed company. They have a new CEO who came in in the last six months or a year. He came in in the pandemic. Everybody was working from home. They had an office in Brooklyn. The board was pushing him to bring everybody back in the office because that was the mindset and generationally of the board. I think he's Gen X. I don't know. But he, he said to me, I said to them, everyone is relatively happy. We're growing 45% a year. What is it that you don't have right now? I mean, we can close the office. And they had manufacturing facilities and they had to work out that kind of stuff. And also in, in my talk, and he was very candid about this, is people are different places in their lives. And job doesn't come first for everybody. It does for some folks who are very aggressive and building their career. And they are willing to make maybe more sacrifices than somebody else who says, you know what, this is a job. And this is what you can expect from me. And that sort of transparency helps leaders motivate helps you track people in terms of where they're going to go in an organization. But having that honesty and that transparency doesn't make one good or one bad, just puts people on different pathways. And then being as human as possible, but what you know or what you don't know in the organization. So I've been saying, you know, coming out of this pandemic, we're going to have transparency, telepresence, and teams as our kind of guiding principles. Yeah, those are really good examples. Thanks for sharing those. Sure. Well, as we're beginning to wrap up, what would you say is your hope for a reimagined workforce? Maybe you can leave us with that thought. My hope is that we will realize that investments in the humans around us are the greatest investments we can make, whether it be mm. in a coworker or a peer or somebody who reports to you or somebody who's not yet in your organization. It's the idea that diversity, like things like diversity, equity, inclusion, particularly when you include social mobility and neurodiversity, is not something nice to do but you're going to learn a lot from somebody who comes from a different perspective than you. It's an opportunity for you to learn and grow. So my greatest hope is that we will really humanize work. We will really start seeing our potential because I think we're just scratching the surface of what humans can do. And yes, technology is going to come in. All sorts of amazing technologies are going to come in, but they're not wiping out humans. I am too much of a champion for team human. <laughs> no, I, I really love that. And 
it is comforting, I think, because we do hear so much hype about technology right now and AI. And of course, it's, it's normal to be a little nervous about things we're not sure of that are new, yeah. but it is comforting to hear from an expert that the future of work really does include humans and human elements of critical thinking and creativeness and including people who whose brains work differently and, and see mm-hmm. things differently. So I think as long as that balance is there with technology, I'll sleep better at night. Yep. Well, where can we learn more about you, about your books, your website? Sure. So you can find out more about me and my books and sort of the overview of what I do, what I speak about, videos of it, information on my books, all of that, ways to contact me if you're looking for a speaker is heathermcgowan.com. It's M-C-G-O-W-A-N.com. Lots of information there. If you're looking to actually engage with me, tell me I'm wrong. That's my favorite thing. If you tell me I'm wrong, I have the opportunity to consider a new perspective and learn something new. It's on LinkedIn. I am wearing different glasses all the time, so I don't think I'm wearing these, but you can see, you know, curly hair, bright colored top, and some kind of glasses. So you get that one. It's Heather E. McGowan. Connect with me there. Tell me what you thought of this. Tell me if you agree, but more importantly, tell me if you disagree, because that's an opportunity for me to learn. My network is open. I learn most from folks there who will say, hey, did you see this article? You might find it interesting, or here's someone who disagrees with you, or here's someone who agrees with you. Less interesting, but always good to get data. So that's it. LinkedIn and my website. Really good. Thank you. And yeah, we were talking before about your extensive glasses collection. So that's it. It's exciting. I now want to go look at your LinkedIn to see all the different (laughs) glasses that you might have. But yes, thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I'm really grateful for you taking the time to impart all of your expertise and your thoughts with us today. It's been really interesting. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lovely conversation. Yeah. And I just want to remind our listeners that all of the resources Heather mentioned and an archive of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. And we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.